It also has been a funny morning of technical issues. Is somebody wearing like an extra staticky wool sweater or something? Like, I know summer's over, but everything's just going bonkers this morning. Tablets and computers and the internet too. We'll see. We'll see if this thing works, right? So I don't know. The iPad, a bit more trustworthy, but all right. Okay. Question for you. Have any of you ever, you have to think back to childhood here a little bit. Did you ever play that card with a sibling when you're having a fight and you tried to convince your sibling that they were adopted? Trying to throw a bit of shade at them, like they're bothering you so much? It never worked for me and my little sister because we're like replicas of, of each other. She's just like a slightly skinnier, but blonde, skinny, blue eyes, whatever, look both like my mom. We couldn't get away with that too well. And then my older sister, I was a bit too intimidated by to kind of throw that heat at her. So didn't work for me. But I think of all the classic stories, too, that try to paint sometimes like adoption or guardianship in a funny way. Harry Potter comes to mind right away, the poor kid who gets shoved into the cupboard under the stairs. Uh, well, we're going through a few of the other stories where it's just like, oh, adoption, and it's a bummer sort of thing. But actually, my experience with adoption was, and not my direct experience, but from people I've known and loved and seen and witnessed it through, actually, it was, it was incredible. It was beautiful. Uh, probably the closest one to me would have been my older sister who uh, adopted, uh, now he is eight, nine? Nine, yeah, he's nine, amazing. Uh, my nephew from Lesotho, does anybody know where that is? Yeah, you just point it on a map. A tiny little country completely surrounded by, it's in the middle of South Africa. It's like this tiny little stuck in the middle, landlocked. Um, they prayed for years and years wanting to adopt a child internationally, and they were matched up and it fell through because the country is in such despair. And then they prayed more and more and were preparing everything and were matched up and something else went wrong. And they finally were uh, paired up and they went out and they spent a long time and they brought back Lareko, call him Reiko, my nephew. And it was amazing. Like this was something that they put all this intention and love and honestly probably put more planning and effort and intentionality into like uh, me and Leslie with bringing Adia into the world. Um, Adoption is a beautiful thing, and what I kind of even saw to that is this thing where um, parents, people took somebody who they would have otherwise had no responsibility for, no obligation to, but it said, no, you are part of our family with the utmost highest level of love, of purpose, of availability to us. We're bringing you into that by choice, and it has nothing to do with what you have done. It has nothing to do with how cute you are, even though he is was adorable, now he's older, and now he's just funnier to bug. But um, it, it was this amazing thing, it was a choice, it was intentional. So that's adoption, and then I th think sometimes it's funny, you know, that I would try to bother my siblings with, or my sister, or we do that saying like, yeah, yeah, but you're just adopted, so you don't matter. Because that actually doesn't seem to be true for the majority of our experience in the world, if you know uh, relationships like that, but it especially isn't true with the Bible's description of adoption. And that's what we're gonna dive into this morning, adoption, especially God's adoption. So, just to catch you up, we are in the book of Galatians. In the New Testament, it is about three quarters of the way through the Bible, if you got the physical book, otherwise you can search it up on your phone. We're gonna be reading in Galatians chapter four this morning, and just to catch you up a bit, uh, I actually had to dive back all the way through our messages, and it was in March. We had gotten ourselves up to about the end of chapter three. We had a guest speaker, Matt Kaminsky, a professor from Columbia Bible College, came in and brought us a message on 
our identity as children of God. And it, it was amazing. I don't know if you remember uh, specifically one of the things I loved was this thing where we talked about, you know, how do you define yourself? How do you tell people about yourself? And usually we say stuff like, oh, well, this is what I do. These are the things I have. These are the people I'm related to or where I come from. And that's, that's what we make up of ourselves. But instead, what we rarely say is whose we are. Who do we belong to? And if you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you get this amazing thing where you get to say, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of God. Versus just what we might not even be aware of is if you're just a slave to your job, you wouldn't say, well, whose are you? I'm just a slave to my business. I'm a slave to my crippling debt, whatever. We actually get to say we're a child of God. So, in, so what we got to go through, we just spent time, and if you're in Galatians, if you're searching it through in uh, chapter three, verse eight, uh, Paul is the author of this book, has been bringing us through this understanding of bringing us back to the gospel. Now, Paul was writing this letter to Christians, followers of Jesus in ancient Galatia, and this was happening only just a few years after they had first heard the gospel and gave their life to Jesus and were so excited about it, and then they started to forget already about how amazing and powerful and transformational the message of Jesus was, and they started kind of going back to their own different things, and these practices are what will set us apart. These habits, these manners and traditions are what will give us favor to God. And then Paul says, oh, I'm going to have to re-educate you guys. I'm going to have to break down all those things that you brought back so quickly into your lives. And I think that's a good reminder because sometimes we think, well, no, I've been a follower of Jesus for 5, 10, 35, 55 years plus, so I'm good. But we often start straying away from the intentionality, from the core of the gospel. We need things broken down. So one of the big things too, and I'm just getting us a catch up here in Galatians chapter three, verse eight, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We're all just one in Jesus Christ. And just a recap of that, Paul is breaking down all the barriers that we seem to put between us and each other, between us and God. We try to make differentiations. The first one is a cultural barrier neither Jew nor Greek, uh, the reality of the ancient world was um, whatever you were born into or married into or sold off into, um, that was it. Like, you didn't get to change or stray. You were either better or worse, greater, lesser. That was just it. And there's these cultural barriers. And Paul says that doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. The second one is the class barrier, slave nor free. But this isn't just like a richer or poor. This is like poor like you're generationally in debt by having your entire life sold into the property of somebody else, that kind of level of poor, or you're so wealthy that you own generations and families of people and slaves, that kind of wealth, which is an insane cultural thing that we barely can understand nowadays. But Paul says wealth doesn't matter. You can't look down on people who are poor, but you also can't boycott and uh, be frustrated with people who are wealthy too. We're all one in the kingdom as well. And then last, the gender barrier, which is still a massive barrier in existence today. We're still constantly trying to wrestle with and figure out and try to make uh, understanding of roles and identities and figuring out how does the world interact, male and female. And Paul says, and not trying to change the definitions of anything, but he mostly says, you're all equal. You all have the same purpose and the validity and value in the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in verse 3, uh, chapter 29. Oh, chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
So that's where we're going to this morning. We are continuing on. Paul has just spent all this time talking about the amazing work that the gospel did, and now he's going to be telling us how this happens. How do we actually experience these barriers being broken down? How do we experience this change in our culture? And we're heading into uh, chapter 4. And just as a quick note here for Bible study, stuff that's very important um, to understand when you're reading the Bible is these numbers that you'll see if you're opening up a Bible for the first time. There's numbers all over the place. Uh, those didn't exist when these letters, when these books were being written, when the prophets and the apostles and authors were writing it down. We just added those after for the sake of cataloging. That's it. Sometimes it conveniently chops up uh, paragraphs well. Other times it uh, can be disruptive, and we think, okay, here's a chapter, I'll study a chapter, but this here's a thought. We're going all the way from chapter 3, verse 23, all the way, continues through, there's no stop, this is the same thought, this is the same thing. So ignore the numbers when you're reading the Bible, just read it through, let it speak to you. We are in Galatians chapter 4 this morning, starting at verse 1, picking up right after Paul is talking about this idea of heirs. What's going on here? So, Galatians 4, chapter 1. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Simple? Clear? No amens. It's okay. We're quiet this morning. We're tired. But that's it, right? So I can, I can go home. That's the message. Let's dive into this a little bit, okay? I, that's my job. We'll dive in. We'll pull this apart. We are going to study through this. We're going to just pull it apart. We're going to let the text speak to us. Right off in verse 1, uh, Paul, the author, says, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. So we're going to start off strong here. We're going to talk about slavery. Fun. Good topic. Super comfortable. Uh, unavoidable, though. This is one of the beautiful things about reading through the text this way, not just picking up the Google things of what does the Bible say about love, but we actually read through the scriptures and let it, let it talk to us and don't pass over the uncomfortable stuff. So let's talk about slavery. Let's get a bit uncomfortable here. And this is important because in this passage, this area, the word comes up 12 times and three times just in the verses we're talking about this morning. The first thing that we need to understand that's worth figuring out and understanding here is the cultural context of slavery and our understanding of slavery now versus our under, the understanding of slavery when this was written. So here's the big thing. We've got to get into this picture. The idea of human equality is, and this is kind of sad, but it's actually in the greater picture of humanity, it's a pretty recent mindset. It's a pretty recent norm of something that we're fighting for, something that actually is seen as a reality, that people are equal regardless of where they're from, their color of their skin, their beliefs, their traditions, anything, that humans are just equal. The majority of human history, and well beyond just the biblical context in the ancient Mediterranean areas and Middle East, 
but all around in Europe and in the Americas and in the Asias and everything else, the Nordic countries, humanity has always battled and assumed this greater people and lesser people. You have four arm, two arms, two legs, limbs, and the head and everything, but you're not really a full human. You're something different and lo- lesser. And again, not pleasant, not right, just talking about history here, talking about a reality that we've got to understand. And I read about an interesting way to understand ancient slavery was probably most akin to our understanding of energy resources the way that nations gain power and control and influence and economic power is, you know, who's got oil now? That's the greatest resource. Or who has uh, wood resources, who has certain mining elements. And those are kind of the resources we think about. And honestly, they give us power over other nations. They give us prosperity and wealth. But in the ancient days, if you had conquered another nation, you had enslaved another nation, that was your resource that let you go on further, that let you accomplish production and manufacturing it, that you accomplish conquering other nations and growing your space and growing your people. That was that. So it was a resource. And again, the, Bibli- the Bible's narrative holistically talks about this reality of slavery, talks about it as it's just a thing that this is what happened. So here's how you look into a world 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 years ago further. Um, but the Bible also has this constant trajectory of actually speaking against the reality of slavery, of talking about the negatives of it, talking about the evils of oppression on other nations. And in fact, the Bible gives us constant instruction as how to treat slaves as equal human beings. The reality is they're still slaves in debt, but they are equal human beings. It talks about ways of, um, in fact, actually there is rebukes for slave owners and slave masters who were unfair and things that would actually bring punishment back on them if they were not treating other humans adequately, and in fact, how to even lift people up and out of slavery, how to lift nations up and out of slavery. That's the Bible's trajectory entirely. So when we're just reading this idea of slavery, we have to understand the big picture. So the thing is, we have this reality of the Bible outlining the negative impact of it. We have the reality of slavery being one of the greatest parts of, unfortunately, what people do to each other. And then this thing happens, and again, only sadly in recent history, in the past couple centuries, where we start to legislate and abolish slavery and legislate human equality, and then this new thing comes up. Because this actually wasn't necessarily as present before, but hate now came up. Actually, more presently, after slavery was legislated to be abolished, that you couldn't do that anymore. And that's now our understanding. We've taken the look at the um, Atlantic slave trade that's happened in North America, more primarily, that's fueled by hate. And we often think of it that way, but it's actually the opposite of slavery was this reality and the hate came afterwards. And it is what we see and read. And so again, the thing that we have to recap is we have this picture of slavery fueled by a violent hatred. The biblical context, not better, just different, still awful, but we just need to get the mindset of understanding is just literally subhuman. And it's just a resource. You are just kind of nothing. You're born into this presence of debt. So that's where we're going into this idea of what Paul is saying to us. I've got a light that's burning out here, unfortunately. Uh, What Paul is saying to us is as uh, before we had the gospel, we were like slaves. And then he goes on and starts talking about this idea of being an heir. And he says, so even if an heir is underage, essentially if you're a kid, you're just like being a slave. 
So going on even to verse 2, the heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So here's the thing. Uh, Paul is comparing kids to being like slaves. The idea is that you kind of own them, you tell them what to do. Uh, I'm a pretty new father. I feel like I'll be saying that for the next five, ten years, every time too. I've got an 11-month-old, and I don't see that connection yet because I can't make my 11-month-old do anything that I want her to do. Uh, if I give her a piece of cheese, I know she'll eat it, but that's about it. That's the only thing that's predictable. Um, does that change? No? Hopefully. Hopefully. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but here's the thing. So when you're a kid, what Paul's kind of talking about here, what he's bringing out is this idea that um, you might be part of a wealthy family, right? You might kind of have the big house and feel like you have it all. And even down the road somewhere, you might have this huge inheritance coming to you. But while you're a kid, you kind of have nothing that's actually yours. If you have any power that you're trying to like flaunt or influence, it's your parents' power. It's not yours. You don't own at the moment anything, nothing. Like you're not the master of your house. You are what Paul is saying here, you're kind of the same as what would be in a wealthy person's house. You would have servants and you would have kids and technically the servants serve the kids, but the kids are kind of equally on par with like, you're not entitled to anything. Um, you're just working on it, like existing until you're old enough. And so, so then we'll go on. So again, we're just building up some of the context here. So while we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So here's what he's really getting at, is telling us before we knew the gospel, before you know Jesus, and even after you know, but you start to move away from the gospel to Jesus, you are kind of under the guidance and the guardianship and the influence of something. Can we turn that light off? It's driving me a little bit nuts. Sorry, Chad. Uh, I think it's, there we go. Um, more things to fix. Sweet. Our giving boxes are at the back three doors, by the way, on your way out. Lights aren't cheap. <laughs> okay, we'll get back into it. So we're always under the influence of something. We don't think we're, we often think we're so autonomous, but we aren't. And what Paul is saying here is that without the gospel or before that, you're like a child, which is like being like a slave, which is like being like, and we'll drive all the way back being kind of subhuman. You don't have that much autonomy. You don't have that much liberty. You don't have that much freedom. You're just subject to whatever is coming. You're born into it, and that's it. And then he says this thing, the elemental spiritual forces of the world, something that Paul, the author who's written a number of letters, books in the New Testament, we call them epistles, um, he has referred to this a few times, and what he's likely talking about is the cultural norm, uh, which would have been about 50 A.D., uh, in kind of the Roman Empire of this worship of the pantheon of gods, all these different gods that represented sex and money and power and wind and tide and earth and sun and light and heat and cold, all these different things. And they have this elemental forces of stuff that we think is kind of like fun stories that we can make superhero movies based off of, but a joke, right? Not really real. And we often miss the fact that we still worship these things like crazy. We just stopped calling them the name. Like, we don't worship Aphrodite anymore, but sex is probably the most ruling power in our world. That's probably the most driving motivation for nearly every decision that's made in the sense of power. We're constantly focused on sex and intimacy and connections with people. We don't worship mammon anymore, but man, do we worship money. And if you don't have it, you need more money and you need more after that. The richest person in the world right now is looking for ways to get more money and more power and influence. We don't worship Zeus, but 
power and influence is probably the most driving goal behind our lives. How can I get more autonomy and more control of stuff around me? And so what Paul's saying here is if you aren't adopted into sonship with God, you're subject to a master. Whether you like it or not, you are a master of these things. You're a master of power. You're a master of, or you're being mastered by sex. You're being mastered by wealth, by the pursuit for these things, by the elemental spiritual forces of the world. We sometimes call it new age, but it's actually always been in existence for humanity, something that we can relate to. And when we try to separate any need for submission to God, one of our uh, statements that I've seen here from the past of the church too is this idea of a walk of faith of being a follower of Jesus here means a life surrendered. We actually acknowledge the fact that we need to be surrendered to what we call the king, what we call God, the ruler of the universe. And if not, you're surrendered to something else. People think we have power, but we don't. So now we get to verse 4, Galatians 4, verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. And I just want to focus on this part right here because it's beautiful. The first thing it triggers in my mind is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his son into our world. Classic verse. You've probably seen it spray-painted on the subway station or on sky trains or walls or whatever. Maybe not as common anymore. There's a wrestler who had it, like, tattooed all across. It was just like, it was a common thing, right? This is the Christian verse. was actually written in history after this book was written. Galatians was one of the first things recorded and documented, one of the first books. And this is kind of the heart of the gospel message, that God sent his son into it. And, and the Gospel of John would have been written after recording just these words that Jesus had said, and Paul had this experience of hearing Jesus. Um, what's, uh, what's amazing and interesting, though, when you hear that verse, when you even read this whole book and passage so far, like this is the uh, climax piece of the Gospel. Many commentators say this is the heart you can read here in Galatians 4 of what the Gospel message is, God sending his Son. And sometimes I think, especially as the church, we've got it wrong when we think through history, we've had so many presentations of the gospel, we talk about, you'll go to hell unless you do. If you want to go to heaven, you can do. But the whole point of the gospel is actually what God did, that God sent his son, that Jesus came into the world. And it doesn't have to actually just do with this getting a free pass and ticket to heaven. It's actually a thing that's more reality of what God did, and are we going to listen to it and trust it or not? So the next part here, too, being born of a woman, born under the law. This is probably the biggest scandal in Christianity. It's one of the things that will always set us apart. There's so many attempts to try to drive sometimes religions together, like we're all trying to focus on the same deity. We're all finding different ways to worship a God or a creator. And people will sometimes surrender and compromise and say, that's kind of true, but here's the biggest thing where it can never be true. When you have statements like this in the Bible that say, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, is literally saying God came into the earth as a human. And every other religion on the planet will say that cannot happen. Wars are fought over this statement. Breakoffs of Christianity are fought saying that that cannot happen. God cannot be a person. God cannot come into the earth. That would be the biggest like, downgrade you could imagine in history, in being in heaven, coming to earth, being born, living under the law, that's a statement of just saying, just being generally human. You're subject to the same kind of temptations, and you sweat, and you hurt, and you have to go to the bathroom, and all these same kind of things. 
I've heard of some people downgrading their phone from an iPhone to an Android to like save some money and make a sacrifice, right? This is, this is way bigger. This would be like, you know, some people go from like a sports car to a Prius, and this would be, you know, way bigger, like going from a Toyota to a Ford in general. You can't, you can't fathom the kind of downgrade you're actually going to be trying to understand that God did for us of coming into the world and living with us. And the beautiful thing with that is that Jesus lived the way we live and experienced what we experienced. And he had fun and he had friends and he partied and celebrated. And he was also bullied and persecuted and made fun of and ostracized and exploited and experienced everything from the highs to the lows. And that's how we can trust that God can relate to us. So now we're going to get right to the heart of what this morning is about. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 5, Paul goes on to say the reason God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So there's a few things that are huge here that are so impacting. I was going through this message this morning. Is there one thing I could talk about? No, there's like 85 things that are just powerful, that are just, I think they guide a lot of what this church has been built up and on about, what my faith has been built up and on about, what I want you to understand, whether you're a skeptic, whether you've believed in this your whole life. Paul is writing this to people who were believers and skeptics, saying this is what you need to build your faith up on. So the first one here is this idea of sonship. Now, we have a bunch of different translations of the Bible, ways that we've taken the original scripts in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and thought, here's how it should write in English. And other people said, no, here's how it should look like in English. And we have a bunch of different translations. We try to find the appropriate cultural context. So what you do get is in some books, uh, some translations, you'll see words like sonship will be translated as children and make it kind of like non-gendered because we want to get this sense that's for everybody, right? But here's a key. In fact, every translation here uses this word sonship specifically because it actually gives us the most full understanding of God's love for men and women in a way that was so profound and countercultural. So what we have here, and I think I've written up there, is this, this idea of we. The original text for that we is a fully inclusive. It's kids and adults and seniors and babies, men and women. We is everybody and everything that could ever possibly read and hear this word. We might receive adoption to sonship. And here's the powerful thing about sonship. If you say sons and daughters, and you have the cultural context from 2,000 years ago, sons and daughters, sons would receive the full inheritance, and they could have power, and they could command servants, and they could get jobs, and daughters didn't really have much. They would go off and get married, and that was about it. But if we all receive adoption to sonship, what Paul is saying here is we all are entitled to that same kind of place in God's family. We are all entitled to the full inheritance of what God could offer us. We are all entitled to the same kind of value and priority in his family. There's no more levels. There's no more layers. In fact, we all have the ability to be gifted and to serve and to speak and lead and tell the truth and teach people. That's one of the big things that our church is actually based off of too, is seeing the fact that no, there's no differentiation in the kingdom of God between men or women of abilities we are all adopted into sonship, the highest level of what you could be in. And then the second part there is adoption. Just this beautiful thing about what we talked about in the very first thing this morning, like what I got to experience with my older sister adopting uh, Lareko. I've read this quote here too that I just love it, is essentially 
bringing somebody into a family who you'd otherwise have no obligation for, no responsibility, no debt or benefit, nothing that was ever transactional other than a pure act motivated by love. That's the kind of adoption that God does into it. There's nothing that we can do. We can't be cute enough. We can't show off enough. We can't do enough good things to earn adoption because that's not how adoption works. It just happens. And that's, again, the entire part of the gospel here is it's not about the stuff that you do. It's about the stuff that God did for you. And here's our response in verse 6. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So just before we finish this out, I love the way Paul describes the response of our adoption for us as children of God. It's kind of the way we start and we cry out. It's the way we end. Now, what came to my mind right away is the fact that, uh, you know, our daughter, 11-month-old, doesn't really have any words yet, but she has figured out how to say mama a lot. And she just kind of goes like, ma, 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 like over and over again. But it's definitely tied to when she wants comfort or when she wants food or if something happens, she's crying. She's like, mom, I want to hold me. And I'm like, hey, I want a chance. Like, can I comfort you? She doesn't really have dada yet at all. Uh, I don't have that kind of response or relief yet. We're working on it. I'm I'm trying to get there. I was hoping I would get it, right? But no, it's it's all about mom right now. But Abba is literally baby talk. It's literally Abba, Abba, Abba. It's what would have been an Aramaic Baby talk, incredibly informal, incredibly close, intimate way of saying daddy. This is the word that Jesus used when he prayed. He literally said, daddy, I'm talking to you, God. And we cry out in the spirit that can live within us. That's our response. When we're adopted, God says, you can be the most powerful businessman on the planet. You can be the wealthiest person with all your servants in your house. You can be the poorest person in the gutter on the street after your 12th time of relapsing from sobriety. You can call out daddy. That's the response to being truly adopted into sonship. It's amazing. I've often thought of it too as this cry out like a powerful response. It actually means, the original word here too, actually means like it's something with energy and passion. It's an impassioned cry out, not just like subtle, not written down and politely like daddy, but something that you might cry out like. So one time I was out hiking, amazing mountain out in Chilliwack, and there's these, it's called Welch Mountain, and you hike up forever. It's like eight hours, and you get to the first, well, you get to a peak, right? It looks like it's the peak. You get to it, and then you see that there's like another 400 meters of elevation to gain, and you get to that one, and that's not it, too. There's actually three peaks, and you finally get to the top peak, and you shout with excitement, you shout with passion and joy, and you're also exhausted and burdened and down, Um, and the sight is absolutely amazing. You say something like, oh, my God, what an amazing feat that I've been able to get up here, and God, thank you for making this passion. That's what it is. So it's like, Daddy, it's, it's amazing. So this is the climax of the gospel in this entire letter that Paul has tried to say, here's all the things that you have tried to keep putting as barriers between you and God, you and each other. He broke those all down, and I said, I'm going to bring it right back to the main truth. It's adoption. It's nothing that you have done, but your response can be as beautiful as a baby calling out Daddy at the end of the day. And maybe you're even in a place of skepticism and it's because you've seen people who are trying to say, here's what Jesus is and here's all the way I do stuff to make sure I protect with saying what Jesus is and here's the way that you've got to vote in order to you know, be part of the family of God. Here's the way you've got to dress in order to be part of the family of God and you have to show up at this time to church to be part of the family of God. But what Paul's saying here is it's not about that either. It's simply about accepting the fact that God has sent his son and adopted you into the same family by trusting in Jesus.
So then we'll come here to the very last verse as we conclude. And it's the, it's the song that we sang that we got to sing a few times too because it's got such amazing uh, uh, refrain in it over and over again that we're no longer a slave to fear. We're no longer uh, a slave in general. We're a child of God. Verse 7, Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. That's the point of adoption again, that you aren't a sub-level. You're not just along for the ride. You're actually part of the family. In a legal kind of contract, what would actually happen commonly in the Greco-Roman world is if a wealthy master of a house had many servants, didn't have any children, he could adopt a servant, and from that moment on, they would be entitled to the full inheritance of the house. They would be a higher level. They would now have their own servants. They would be masters of the house as well. And they could do that and bring that person legally into sonship. It's actually taking, Paul here is using a brilliant thing that bridges the gap of talking in the religious language to the Jewish people as well as the cultural language to the Greek people of saying, here's the amazing thing God does for you. And no other belief system, no other understanding of the world. You could be as passionate, devout, and atheistic as you want. You still become a master to something, and the biggest thing you have to choose and understand is, are you a master to something that's going to beg for more of your earning of merit? Do you have to do more and more to be good enough to get any sort of value in your own life? Whether you're worshiping all of the elemental gods that we pretend aren't gods, but they are in our life, even if it's just addiction to entertainment and to approval from other people around us, that kind of a God, which I think in my generation and Gen Z below me is probably going to be the biggest thing, is just getting worshipped by their peers as much as possible. They in themselves are just needing approval. They think they're a God, but their God is actually everyone around them and the likes on TikTok. Or will you actually receive and accept a gift from a God who created the world, who loved you so much that he sent his son into our life to spread this message of truth and actually bridge the gap and stand in the place to say, this is my brother and this is my sister. God adopts us all into it. So the most profound truth you can walk away here with is the knowledge that the gospel, that Jesus plus nothing, this is the good news of a God who adopts you and every other faith and philosophy in the world is based on earning our own keep and earning our own merit and the suffering and burden of not achieving enough. God steps in and simply responds to our cry out to him saying, Abba, Daddy, Father God. And he just replies with saying, child of mine. So dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. God, as a reminder of what the gospel is, God, it's something that you have done for us. God, it's not something that we could ever conceivably accomplish. God, we can't even have a part in this. We are simply bystanders of your amazing work and your amazing love. God, I just pray that this impacts us in a way that encourages us and challenges us to live in a way of knowing that we are your children, God, that we recognize the things that we constantly do in our life to try to add to it, add to the gospel, add to this message of we're doing more, that we're doing better, that we are doing better than somebody else who might not be worthy of it too. But God, also let us see the world and all the people around us, this city, as people who you also love and that you also invite into sonship, God, that you open up adoption to. God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.